Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2019 festival, best-selling historian Robert Service returns to the festival to talk about his book, Kremlin Winter, Russia and the Second Coming of Vladimir Putin. The moderator is journalist and author David McCullough, and the episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 19th of October 2019. Uh, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, great to see such a crowd. Uh, and uh, as has been said, you will not be disappointed. Anybody that knows about Russia or Russian history will know the name of Robert Service uh, from his work in Oxford University, where he was professor of Russian history yeah. and is, uh, remains a fellow of St. Anthony's College and also a fellow of the Hoover Institution in Stanford University. Uh, in California. Now, Robert has written many books. Uh, I'm not going to list them all, but he has written biographies, uh, very notably, of uh, Lenin, Trotsky and Stalin. And he's now turned his attention to another Russian character. Uh, and I don't know whether he'll be drawing comparisons between them, <laughs> all four of those uh, people. But his new book is uh, Kremlin Winter, Russia and the Second Coming of Vladimir Putin. And it is, if I may say so, an excellent piece of work. Um, it treats the story of this hugely important figure with both fairness and with rigour. And I think that's important because I know Robert is keen to have a, uh, a balanced discussion about Vladimir Putin and, and what he means uh, for all of us and for global politics. Now, just to explain the format, um, Robert is going to speak for about 10 minutes outlining the main thesis uh, of the book. I will then attempt to have a conversation with him uh, about it uh, for about half an hour or so, and then hopefully we'll have time for questions from the floor. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcoming back again to the Dublin Festival of History. Will you please welcome Robert Service. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks very much for coming along. Uh, this is the most fantastic uh, um, phenomenon, this festival of history. Um, there's nothing like it in the rest of the world. And uh, it's, a, it's a real delight to to come back to it. Um, I only wish that London had uh, a similar um, thing going on for it. But there are a lot of things going wrong in <laughs> London that need attention before we get our festival of history. There are some things I'd like to be historical now that are going on. Um, Putin is a... a um, a dominant character that we've got used to regarding as the world's bogeyman. Curiously, we don't think of the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, in quite the same terms that we think of when we uh, look at Putin. We don't put even Erdogan or the North Korean leader in the same category. Putin is a real bogeyman in the world's media. In Russia, his supporters treat him as some kind of national savior, as uh, a, a secular messiah. And that's the reason why the subtitle of my book is The Second Coming of Putin. Um, he, he really plays up to this notion that salvation has come through the stability that he has provided Russia with since he became president in the year 
uh, 2000. Now, between these two poles of bogeyman and secular national uh, messiah, there has to be something in between uh, that makes sense of what's going on in Russia today. And I think we have to move away from any idea that Russia is a, a, a supremely ordered state and society. It is actually still a, a very chaotic place to live in. And Putin, although he's the dominant political leader of his country, there's no doubt about that, it's uh, significant that of the presidential uh, decrees, only 60% are ever fulfilled. He's not, in other words, uh, a dictator. Once the decrees filtered down to the lower levels of the administration, many of them are quietly forgotten as unachievable or simply undesirable. And there's a further point about Putin that needs to be borne in mind. He was put in place in the year 2000 because he represented the kind of purposes that almost the entire political elite and large sections of the economic elite wanted to be put in place. So he knows that he is constrained by the sort of Russia that these important political and economic leaders uh, desire. And it follows from that that when he anoints his successor, when he finally agrees to leave power, whether or not he uh, steps down when he should do at the next uh, election or whether he amends the constitution again and gets another period in office. Regardless of that, eventually he, as a human being, will have to leave the political stage. The likelihood is that his successor will be someone who acts within the parameters that have been set for Russia over the last two decades, so that we can expect more of the same. We shouldn't expect too much change in Russia. There are constraints on any potential successor that will limit the amount of change uh, that he will be able to achieve. And it's not just the elite that places constraints on the leader, it's also the society. Russia is not a totalitarian state any longer. Uh, it has a free-ish media. Television isn't as free as the press. It has a comparatively free internet as yet. It's not entirely free, not as free as it is uh, in the West. People have rights to privacy that they didn't have in the days of the Soviet Union, and they can take to the streets. They they do so at their own risk. They can be beaten over the head by policemen, but they do demonstrate. Now, they did not demonstrate under Joseph Stalin. 
There is a big change there. So we've got to get Putin somehow into perspective. We've got to see how he and the rest of the elite that he dominates see the future of Russia. The first point to make is that they're anti-Western. They like Western clothes. They send their sons and some of their daughters to largely English uh, private schools. Uh, they like Western rock music. Uh, they take their holidays in Alpine villages. But their general strategic choice is to confront the West. And they did this most spectacularly in 2014 by annexing uh, Crimea. They knew the risks that they were taking. But by then they had turned their back on accommodating the West. They have hacked into political parties' uh, IT systems, exposed their email caches. Uh, they have sought to break up the Western alliance, the NATO alliance, by issuing uh, basically political bribes to particular political parties in France and elsewhere, and to uh, the Hungarian government itself. Uh, and they have conducted really spectacular campaigns of uh, intimidation and indeed murder uh, in foreign countries. So they have been the great disruptors. And they have been violent disruptors at that. And something that hasn't been sufficiently uh, understood in the West is the extent of the, the punts they've made, the gamble they've taken, the strategic gamble they've taken, of saying, we're turning our backs on the Western possibility, and we're going to embrace the Chinese. So they have gone out on a limb and said the only big alliance that we need, they don't really have allies in Europe, with a possible exception of the Hungarians. Uh, the only allies we really need in the world are the Chinese. This is a spectacular gamble on Russia's part. And we're proud of what we're doing. We've taken Crimea. We are involved in Syria. We're now a proud nation. Russia in the 1990s was a humiliated nation. It had lost the Cold War. Uh, its economy was in ruins. It had a depression, a massive depression. Now it's a proud nation. It runs Formula One, Grand Prix. It holds the FIFA World Cup. Uh, it held the uh, Sochi Olympics. Uh, it struts on the world stage. So it's proud of its assertiveness. And Russians have warmed to Putin. 
until quite recently, he had a score rating in popularity terms of over 80%, quite regularly in 2015 and early 2016. Now, what I've tried to say in this book is that this appearance of assertiveness is something of a mirage, and that in the longer term, Russia is running its engine, running its presidential limousine, but also the limousines of the entire elite down a dead end. It has been 20 years that Putin has benefited from massive oil and gas and diamond and timber uh, revenues, and yet the, the economy is not one to classify Russia as that of a great power, in as much as it doesn't have a diversified economy. China has a diversified economy, Russia doesn't. It's still largely a raw materials, raw resources, natural resources uh, exporter uh, economy. Secondly, China industrialized itself, modernized itself by encouraging and obtaining foreign direct investment on a massive scale. This has not happened in Russia. Per capita, the Poles and the Czechs and the other peoples of Eastern Europe have done massively better in attracting foreign direct investment and collaboration than have the Russians. And they need that in order to make the leap forward. They need a different foreign policy for that to be achieved. And furthermore, this apparently dominant elite, in my view, is extremely vulnerable to explosions of political discontent, uh, especially pensioners. Last year, when the pension age was altered arbitrarily uh, by Putin's ministers, and he didn't announce it himself. He got a minister to make the announcement. It shows that that was a very sensitive thing to do. Pensioners came out on the streets, they boarded buses, they boarded trains, they blocked roads, and the, the government had to adjust its policies. This year, when uh, opposition parties wanted to contest the Moscow City Council elections, young people took to the streets because candidates were banned uh, in a manipulation of the electoral law. And there were mass demonstrations against this furious discontent on the streets. So Russia is, is capable of exploding, especially in the towns. And the elite being so dependent on gas and oil export prices being high are vulnerable uh, to that in the long term. So we shouldn't think that Russia is always going to be uh, the, the Russia that we see today. And that thing I talked about earlier, which I think is very, very important uh, for the future, any sensible Kremlin leader should have said to himself back in the early 2000s, we ought to play China off against the West. 
That way we're going to have leeway in order to make gains for our national interest. That is not possible while there is enmity between Russia and the West. And the Chinese have the greater bargaining card as a result from the Russian embrace. The Chinese can name the terms on which they will deal with Russia. Russia is far more vulnerable, therefore, and Russian politics potentially could become volatile again. And that's really at the heart of what I've been trying to say in the book, that it's a more interesting country, it's a more changeable country. Uh, it's less of a caricature than we're used to getting. Robert, thank you very much. Um, just to start off uh, the conversation, I mean, you say uh, this image of Putin as the national saver. He's not a Stalin. Uh, he's not a dictator. And yet we do have what you call the Putin cult. And we're all familiar with the photographs of the president mm. in macho poses, shirt off, all the rest of it. And you quote a, a pop song, actually, from 2002, A Man Like Putin, where the singer is saying she would like someone like Putin who'll be a tower of strength, someone like Putin who won't take to the drink, someone like Putin who won't disrespect me, someone like Putin who won't walk out on me. Now, no disrespect to Western political leaders, but I can't imagine... <laughs> A similar song being, being sung about any of them. Um, so <laughs> how important is, is, is that cult, that, that image building for him? I think it's uh, very, very important. Um, no minister is allowed to gain any kind of prominence that will rival Putin's. And uh, so he, he dominates the public image of Russia. We, we tend to think of Russia and Putin as being uh, more or less... Um, the same thing, don't we? Um, uh, there are calendars produced of him, songs written uh, about him. Uh, he's always on the television every single day. Uh, most Russians get their news from the television. Uh, it's, it's a deliberate attempt then to say things are good here because we've got a young dynamic leader. Well, he's not young anymore. He's in his, his uh, mid-60s, uh, but he is supremely fit. Uh, he works out. He, he, he definitely does work out um, daily. Um, Sometimes at the expense of doing his actual work, I think you suggested. Well, there are rumours to that effect, yeah. yeah. Uh, that he, he, he overdoes the, uh, the sporting So I mean, he appears at ice hockey matches as a, as a player. <laughs> you, wouldn't have, you wouldn't have caught Joseph Stalin <laughs> risk, risking that. Yes. You also say he's a ruler who believes his people are lucky to have him as their president. Now, there are some similarities with Western politicians there, I think, in fairness. Yeah. I have met yeah. some. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of his background, in terms of what shaped him, mm. we'll talk about the 1990s in a minute because, as, as mm. you say, it is very important. Yeah. But also very important is the KGB. Yeah. Um, I mean, you say his patriotism, mistrust and mercilessness are the characteristic mm. qualities of an intelligence officer. So how much did he learn from his time in the KGB that is informing his, uh, his performance now? I think uh, a, a huge amount. Um, uh, the KGB was a very patriotic organisation. Uh, it trained its recruits to be patriots. It put them... If, if they were outstanding recruits like Putin, they would be put through the higher school, the academy of the KGB. 
and they'd be taught how to deal with uh, everybody they met in the West, uh, to dissemble their feelings, to work out the weaknesses of, of those whom, whom they left, uh, whom they uh, met. This KGB training was important because of all of the institutions that uh, survived from the Soviet Union, the KGB, in the form of the FSB now, is the only one that survives. It's the only one that had the resilience to regather itself in the 1990s and, and come through into the 2000s more or less intact. I mean, it had a terrible time in the early 90s when a lot of the KGB officers and agents became security officers for private firms. Mm. But, they, but once you were in the KGB, you never left it. Even if you left it, you didn't leave it. They could call you back in. Um, uh, he, he's very much a disciplined ex-KGB man. I was interested, you, you have two examples, though, where that might have led him into error. And one is that rather thuggish occasion when he, he brought his dog along to a meeting with Angela Merkel, who's, who's yeah. famously afraid of dogs. And the other was when the, the Kursk, the uh, nuclear submarine, sank, and he refused to interrupt his holidays because yeah. he, he felt it would be uh, demeaning to show emotion. Yes. Is that it? Yes. Yeah, that, I, I think that's very striking, that he, he has this clinical attitude to the people. Uh, when he gets sentimental about the Russians, it's partly an act. You know, it's almost, he's, a tea, he's more or less teetotal. He only takes the slightest little sip of uh, vodka or, or wine uh, on official uh, occasions. But he acts as if he is drunk when he's talking about the Russian people. He, he sort of gets very... Um, over-emotional, and, and part of this is an act. Mm. Um, he, uh, he's a terrific dissembler. He's a great pretender. Um, and he's learnt on the job. I mean, when Tony Blair went over uh, on his first meeting with uh, Putin, and I, I've learnt from David that Bertie Ahern went over um, even before Blair. Uh, one of the things that uh, Putin asked uh, Blair was, "What should I do about PR? What am I? What am I? What am I doing wrong?" And Blair gave him gave him uh, lessons in what he was doing wrong because to start with he was too impassive he was mm. too clinical he was too um, uncaring looking and I obviously don't know what Blair said to him but you remember Tony Blair I mean he was always smiling and unctuous and um, uh, for, for all of his positive qualities he had uh, negative qualities also that um, helped him win elections. Mm. Um, so that's another thing we can blame Tony Blair for. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the 1990s, you mentioned the 1990s, and I think if, mm. if, if, if people don't understand how, how the depths of, of, of the problems that face the Russian people, it, it, it's difficult mm. to understand uh, Putin. And, and, and you're right, what Russia has been experiencing is not just a post-imperial, but also a post 
superpower syndrome. Now, I won't get into post-imperial yes. syndrome with you at the moment because of Brexit. But um, the, 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 <laughs> the post-superpower thing, I mean, they, they had a place on the world stage and it was taken away mm. from them. And, and there was absolute chaos in Russia in the 1990s. I think every country that has had an empire has problems with dealing with the loss of empire and it goes on for decades. Um, it's definitely going on at the moment in the United Kingdom. Uh, Brexit is in part an expression of this. Long after Suez in 1956, uh, long after Africa left the British Empire, uh, the mentality of an imperial power remains with an imperial people, and Russians definitely have it. And Putin, Putin in his early statements in the early 1990s, when he was never likely to become president, went on public record saying what a, what a terrible thing it was that uh, the Soviet Union had broken up. Why? Because Russians, 20-odd million Russians, were now living in foreign states who, until 1991, were part of a big multinational, multinational state, he would call it. I would call it uh, an empire. This is very strong and he uh, has a feeling and he, he repeatedly makes this comment about this is what he most regrets about the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's not the end of communism. Putin is not a communist. He had a, he had a, a communist party card, but he wasn't a sentimental communist. Um, he, he's a capitalist. He believes in uh, the inequality of man. He believes that um, the market economy has made this new elite rich and will eventually make Russians better off than they are uh, now. The thing he most regrets is uh, the fact that Russians now live in Estonia and in Georgia without the same feeling of common statehood that they had when the, the Soviet Union existed. He's quite, um, he's quite warm about the Russian empire that existed before uh, 1917. Mm. Okay. We'll come back to that in a second, but just uh, in terms of his, his rise to power, because uh, you write in the book that he says it came as a surprise to him, and it, on the face of it, mm. it is surprising. He was... He was um, a kind of a non-entity in the early 1990s, mm. presumably, and yet he's plucked from relative obscurity. He's made head of the FSB for yeah. two years, then prime minister, and then, astonishingly, Yeltsin appoints him mm. acting president in, on New Year's Day 2000. So what was it about Putin that attracted the attention of Yeltsin, attracted the, the support of Yeltsin? Why, why did he get picked out of the pack to become the, the leader? Ah, now, that, that, I think, is important, that... Uh, Yeltsin went round more than one candidate right. in uh, 1998 and 1999. He was searching for someone who would loyally uh, decline to persecute the Yeltsin family after Yeltsin stood down from office. But he also wanted someone with a clarity of purpose 
and the necessary toughness. Um, in, in conversations that he held with uh, Bill Clinton at the time, which are available online, you can get them from the uh, American records online, he, he stressed to Clinton that uh, he was a Democrat, Putin was a Democrat, well, he got that wrong, uh, but that he was always also tough. Uh, and that to run Russia, that the leader had to be tough. I mean, Yeltsin, Yeltsin himself was really tough, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he was also often drunk um, and in seriously declining health. Yeltsin was an extraordinary man, an extraordinary leader, uh, who, who has been um, underestimated, I think, by... Um, us in the West, uh, I think his his reputation will will um, climb up again as times when time goes on. But Yeltsin wanted someone who would pull things together, and elite opinion said the Americans are now running the world. Mm. Russians don't have any say in what's happening in Yugoslavia. Uh, We've got to have stability. We've got to have tough central leadership. So eventually he, he turned to this rather obscure KGB, ex-KGB, now FSB uh, official whom he'd made as his prime minister. He he'd tested him out on the question of personal loyalty and he turned to him. And when Yeltsin came, I, I met Yeltsin in the early 2000s. When Yeltsin came over to this uh, to uh, um, Britain uh, in the early 2000s, um, he said quietly that he regretted the the uh, trampling on civic freedom in Putin's Russia. But he he admired he admired his his toughness and his uh, clarity of purpose. And I think clarity of purpose was something that he didn't see in the other, in the other security personnel who might have, might have taken over the job. So they might have him. had the toughness, but not the clarity of purpose. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it, there's certainly clarity of purpose when it comes to the uh, political system in y Russia. Yes. Uh, and now you, you've said uh, he's not a dictator uh, and there is a form mm. of democracy, not democracy perhaps as we would understand mm. it, because if you're a serious threat, you're likely to have a mm. compromise used against you on, yeah. on television, or you could end up getting shot, as Boris Nemtsov did. Yes. So, I mean, people in the West assume that Putin must have had something to do with that assassination. What do you think? I, I, I would just like stronger evidence than circumstantial evidence. Um, I do think that we do ourselves a disservice if we, if we do as the British Foreign Secretary of that time did and point the finger straight at mm. uh, Putin, uh, his name at the time 
the foreign secretary at the time, you'll all recall, was Boris Johnson. Wonder whatever happened to him. Uh, I don't know what. <laughs> uh, and that's just no good. Uh, there's got to be evidence before um, you say things. Otherwise, the Russians just laugh at you. They, 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 they want a West that, that plays by the evidential uh, rules. What I would say, though, is that he's had 20 years to alter the political climate. And in those 20 years, people who uh, assassinate uh, key public figures, either in Russia or abroad, don't pay the consequences. And it's happened far too many times. So that even if you can't point the finger of blame specifically at at, at uh, Putin for the assassination of the liberal leader, Boris Nemtsov. Uh, Putin has a larger responsibility for not making the climate more um, congenial for uh, free and fair politics. He's, he's not really a Democrat. He's somebody who uses the forms of dem democracy in order to sustain the collective autocracy of this um, political and business elite. You talk about Putin's worldview and the, the worldview of other Russian politicians, and you describe them as nationalists of a kind that denounce rampant globalization, liberalism, and progressive social thinking. And I thought, ding, ding, Steve Bannon. So there is a, yeah. a commonality of view uh, yes. with, with some of the right-wing forces uh, in, in the West now. There is. Um, uh, Putin and Donald Trump, Viktor Orban in uh, Hungary, Steve Bannon in the States, they are batting on the same wicket uh, in, in uh, some of the things that they think about current world politics and what they want uh, changing. Um, one of, the, one of the strangest things about world politics at the moment is that back in the 70s and the 80s, when the Cold War uh, was extremely dangerous, uh, when Soviet and American leaders came together for summits, although not everything that went on at the summits was revealed afterwards for a long time. At least some of what was said between the two leaders of the time was revealed to the press. And eventually transcripts were uh, released uh, of, of some of the uh, proceedings. This is not happening now. We, we haven't got a clue what... Um, Donald Trump said to Vladimir Putin uh, last year when they met in a summit. So we've got uh, a very dangerous situation where we're only guessing about what, what the wheeling and the dealing uh, is all about. And of course, that gives rise to the most uh, extraordinary rumours about the Putin-Trump connection. 
Well, I was saying earlier, if 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 uh, I mean, some people regard uh, President Trump as some kind of an agent of the Kremlin, yeah. uh, which uh, he may or may not be. But if he were an agent of a Kremlin, would he would he be doing much different to what he's doing? It's there's there's being a, a there's a difference between being someone who is under personal pressure to do exactly as Putin says mm. because they've got compromat they've got some means of uh, blackmailing him and uh, the other possibility is that Trump wants to do a deal between Russia and uh, America and to disembarrass America from a lot of the entanglements which it has in the Middle East uh, and Europe and NATO. Uh, so it's hard to know without knowing much more about what they actually said to each other and say to each other uh, at summits. And of course, the American political class is similarly perplexed about what it is that their, their own president is doing. By and large, <laughs> by and large, the Russians know what Putin is doing. I mean, there's never been a leader in history who has published so much about him, himself. You can go on the presidential website, and I think there are only about three or four big speeches that he's given that aren't repeated uh, on the presidential website. That, that, that was one of the um, ways I wrote this book, reading, reading all his speeches and seeing... Because if you publish so much, eventually you're going to say something that you don't want the world to, to hear. Uh, very few of his speeches are withheld from publication, except when he's talking, say, to the leadership of the FSB. I'm talking about public speeches, not about things done behind the scenes. Um, just before I move on, in terms of foreign policy, the, what's happened in Syria in the, in the past mm. week to 10 days, um, that looks from the outside to be a big win for Putin at the end of the day. Would you, would you agree with that? It is a big win, I think, um, in the short term. Whether it is in the long term uh, a big win to replace America in that bit of the Middle East with all of the entanglements that uh, that's likely to involve in uh, the more distant future, I think that's an open question, especially as Russia doesn't have the... Um, extraordinary financial resources that the Americans have. Um, I think the Chinese think it's, it's wonderful that uh, Putin is thumbing his nose at NATO, especially at the Americans. He's doing uh, their job for them. Uh, he's a very uh, active insulter of Western, not just Western politics, but Western values. Uh, he's a, he's a, I'll come back to what I was saying earlier. He's not a communist. He's a, he's a social conservative in a big way, 
Uh, he's very hung up about uh, homosexuality. Um, he supports forms of religion that are uh, the more archaic, the better. He's, he's not interested in supporting reform in the Russian Orthodox Church, which is one of the most anti-democratic, big religious organizations uh, in the world. Um, he's a, he's, I was going to say he's a social reactionary, but perhaps that's going a bit too far, but he's certainly, I'm trying to be fair to him, uh, he's certainly an extreme, he doesn't act conservatively though, his personal, his personal ethics are not um, in line with the recommendations he gives to um, families and, and to churchgoers. Mm. Um, you mentioned earlier his his feeling for the ethnic Russians who are now outside the borders of, yeah. of, of Russia. And there's this lovely phrase, which, which I, I wasn't aware of before, the near abroad. Yeah. And if you were an Estonian or a Ukrainian or a Kazakh, would you be worried about being yeah. referred to in such a way? And yeah. why? Yeah. Absolutely. That when they when the Soviet Union fell, there was there had to be a change of language. And for a time they used to talk about the country. So when when they were talking about the ex Soviet Union, they talked about the country, strana in uh, Russian. And then they hit on this phrase there was abroad distant abroad, that was Turkey or Czechoslovakia uh, or Korea. And then there was a near abroad and that was code for the ex-Soviet Union. Um, what happened in Crimea agitates Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians, not just Ukrainians. It agitates Georgians. It, it agitates Uzbeks. Uzbeks don't say as much about it as uh, Ukrainians do, but they're worried about it, and Kazakhs are worried about it. And in some parts of the ex-Soviet Union, particularly those immediately bordering the Russian uh, frontier, there are large numbers of Russian residents. There are in Estonia, um, obviously there are in Ukraine, uh, and there, there are in the northern belt of Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan wasn't even a republic in the Soviet Union until the middle of the 1930s. It's a recently uh, formed uh, political entity. Putin doesn't regard even Ukraine as uh, a self-standing independent state. He said as much openly in 2008, and before that in 2007. So these, these new countries are very, very worried that what's happening in eastern Ukraine could happen to them too. Does he want control there or does he just want influence? Well, I think... Uh, I think the default mechanism is that he wants easy victories. And he wouldn't get an easy victory in most of these uh, countries. Uh, Ukraine, Ukraine was in tumult 
when he invaded. He invaded at an easy time for Russians to take over uh, Crimea. He hasn't got that opportunity with Estonia. He also doesn't have a buoyant economy. The gas and oil prices went down in 2014. It wasn't just the Western sanctions. It wasn't mainly the Western sanctions that uh, ruined Putin's economy in 2014. Uh, it, it was a decline in gas and oil prices. So R Russia is far too dependent on exporting its natural resources. It's like Saudi Arabia with nuclear weapons. That's why they're never going to give up their nuclear weapons. It's, 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 the, it's the one thing that gives them uh, something like great power status, the, the ability to intimidate neighbors through those nuclear weapons because the, the Kazakhs had nuclear weapons in Kazakhstan and the Ukrainians had them in Ukraine and a deal was done that only Russia, of all the states of the former Soviet Union, would retain nuclear weapons. And so that has made them, the Russians, permanently able to intimidate their neighbours. Quite apart from the fact that they've now successfully modernised their conventional forces. Okay, I'm, I'm conscious that we want to leave some time for, uh, for <coughs> questions from, from the audience, but I just wanted to very quickly, we all know about allegations of Russian interference in yeah. uh, elections. So let's look at Europe first. Yeah. Um, there was definitely interference in the Brexit referendum, yeah. uh, the French presidential election, yeah. um, the Italian elections, I think, as well. Yes. What is the aim? What is he trying to achieve, or what is Russia trying to achieve with that interference? I think... Um, he ran a conference a couple of years ago whose theme was creative destruction. Creative destruction. <laughs> he holds a conference every year at a place called Valdai where uh, he invites uh, Western public figures and journalists and some academics to uh, enjoy themselves and listen to him. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, and the theme of, of the conference was creative destruction. Uh, and by that he meant, uh, we've got to break up the old world order. And we've got to disrupt the, the existing structures and, um, of political power. We've, we've got to smash the conventional wisdom about how the world should be run. And he wants, he wants to uh, then weaken uh, the European Union uh, and do everything he can to encourage the equivalent of Brexit in all the other states. So he will, he will give finance to political parties that are pursuing that line. Um, and it's cheap. It's cheap politics. It's millions of dollars, but that's coming out of the treasury, uh, the Russian treasury. It's, it's not very expensive to do that. If you've got the uh, military intelligence and you've got the IT 
agencies who can carry that out for you. It's it's um, uh, breaking up the <coughs> EU would be the best thing from his point of view because it would may mean that there would only be one great uh, European power and that would be Russia west of the Urals. In terms of the United States and the American election, I mean, a lot of Americans would regard what was done in 2016 as an aggressive act. I know Hillary Clinton certainly does. Yeah. Um, but the Russians would view it as, as payback for, for American meddling in, in Ukraine, American meddling in, in even in the Russian elections, would they? Yeah, the, the Russian political establishment think that the Americans meddled in far too many processes in the near abroad and there is no more sensitive part of the near abroad than Ukraine. So they, they exaggerate how much the Americans did to provoke the, the revolutions in Ukraine in the, in the 2000s. But they, they certainly think that what they're doing now is payback. And are they going to do it again? Uh, I, th I think that there's every likelihood that they will make another attempt because uh, they do have the... I've said they're not a technological power. By that I mean they haven't dispersed their uh, dynamic inventiveness to the entire economy in the way that, say, the Chinese have done or the Americans have done. Uh, but they do have agencies that can that can secretly um, do the sort of damage that they did uh, in 2016. I mean, Hillary Clinton lost the election. She, she didn't. She wasn't robbed of it by the Russians. Um, you could say the Russians are shooting themselves in the foot because they're making a bigger enemy of of America than they, than they needed to do from their own, um, from, the point, from the point of view of their own national uh, interest. That's, that's really one of the main points I make in the book. The, the, the Russian national interest, taking a purely crim, uh, clinical view of it all, is to play China against uh, America and draw concessions from both of them. Uh, that's the way Metternich would, have done in, Metternich would have done in the early 19th century. Um, uh, and they're not doing that. And uh, it's, it's a, a, a geo... Henry Kissinger wouldn't have made that mistake. <laughs> so we're, we're talking about people who who take a ruthless view of world politics. Putin seems ruthless, but he's, he's not as clever as he, he thinks he is. Okay, uh, well, let's just see if we have any questions from, uh, from the audience. Uh, yes, I think we do. Hello, yeah, that was re a really great talk. It was very informative. Uh, just one question uh, for Robert. Would the primary opposition leader in Russia, Navalny, I think his name is, yeah. Would anything change under him if he ever made it to the Kremlin? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's, 
I, I didn't spend much time talking about the opposition because the opposition is contained, uh, brutally contained. Uh, Navalny, uh, Alexei Navalny, since the murder of Boris Nemtsov, is the most prominent opposition leader. He is um, a nationalist. He has some liberal ideas, but he has a lot of nationalist ideas. Um, for example, uh, he's, Chechnya is part of the Russian Federation. One of his slogans is, why are we feeding Chechnya? So he's, he's not to be regarded as um, opposed to Putin in everything. The terms of the debate in Russia have moved away from liberals. Liberals don't have the prominence in Russian political debate uh, that they had in the 1990s. And uh, Putin has successfully moved the, uh, the terms of the debate over towards nationalism. I, I, I wrote a, uh, a history of Russia uh, in the 1990s published it in 1997. And uh, in the first edition, I felt confident about saying that um, nationalism played a, a small part in the public agenda in Russia in comparison with what had been predicted for it when the Soviet Union fell. Uh, you can't say that any longer. The terms of the debate have moved towards, I think, the impossibility of anyone coming to power now unless they are nationalistic. And that's a development that Putin has encouraged. Yeltsin was moving that way before he stepped down from office, but Putin has um, motored forward. So I don't have any great hopes for Navalny. I think he I think he's overestimated in the West as a liberal as a liberal force. I mean he's a very brave and courageous man. Um, he exposes a lot of corruption. Uh, he's doing a lot of good in Russian public life. But there are some aspects of his policies that I think are, that give us grounds for thinking that we, we shouldn't put all of our hopes uh, in the bucket of Alexei Navalny. Okay, anybody else? Uh, yep, lady here. Hello. At the front. Is it on? Yeah. Um, one has the impression, you know, that Russia is a place with a very widespread and entrenched mafia, if you like, a gangster element, uh, and that that's intertwined with the economic elite. I just wonder, could you comment on that and the relationship between sort of mafia, culture, influence, politics, and Putin? Thank you. Um, 
Russia always had organized crime uh, groupings, e even in Stalin's time. And uh, these didn't go away after Stalin died. So uh, some of the republics were more, more criminally infested than others. Uzbekistan was notorious for this. Um, when Mikhail Gorbachev started to loosen the controls over the centrally planned economy, then a lot of the deals that were done were very corruptly done. And they needed the support of well-armed groups. So you get this even before the complete transition to a market economy in Russia in the 1990s. It was already happening big time in 1989, 1990, and the early part of uh, 1991. And anyone who was running a local administration, say a city administration like Leningrad, as Putin was doing in the early 1990s, he was deputy mayor of Leningrad, huge city, uh, would have to use some of these organizations in order to get things done, in order to impose uh, policy uh, decisions. So criminality, the links between public politics and criminal gangs uh, grew stronger in the 1990s and it's still there. And um, Putin has done very little to uh, change that situation because he benefits from it, because the criminal gangs have an interest in the extremely unequal form of economy that emerged from Russia in the late 19. 80s, was confirmed in Russia in the 1990s. We all know of stories of these extraordinarily rich uh, oligarchs. All of them are using uh, criminal groups to, uh, or were in the 1990s, were using criminal groups to eliminate their opponents, their rivals. So it was a very, very wild form of capitalism that was installed in Russia. And it's still pretty wild. Sorry. Um, I saw Sheila Fitzpatrick talk in 2017 um, on the, you know, the 100 year anniversary of the, of the 1917 revolution. Yeah. And she put forward the idea that, um, that, that Putin would have had more admiration for Stalin because he actually increased the land that Russia controlled whereas Lenin decreased it with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. And I was just wondering, what, mm. I mean, as a biographer of all three, what yeah. would be your opinion with regard to the comparisons between Putin, Lenin and Stalin? Thank you. Uh, it's certainly true that um, reading, um, r reading Pu Putin's speeches since 2000, if, if you do a Google search, I, I, I'm not, claiming that I've read every single speech by him. That would be, be saying I was brain dead by now. <laughs> um, but if you put in the word Lenin, 
uh, you can bring up practically all the references to Lenin. And none of them are good. Absolutely none of them are good. Whereas in the case of Stalin, there's often a, a comment that uh, the Soviet Union made uh, advances in education, in science, in technology, and in um, the assertion of Russian pride. He, I, he's got a point. Uh, um, the fact that Stalin terrorized scientists, terrorized musicians, killed poets. I mean, that's, that's all left to one side by Putin. Um, Putin does admire the Russian Empire and he, he admires the Tsars who, uh, who used the army and the navy to expand Russian power. So he's proud of that aspect, just as Stalin was, uh, expanding Russian imperial power. So he, he really holds it, it against Lenin, as you, as you quite rightly say, for losing territory, especially at Brest-Litovsk in 1918, uh, when the whole of Ukraine and Belarusia and the Baltic states was handed over to German military occupation. So another aspect of all of this is pride. Pride, uh, imperial pride. He doesn't call it imperial, but that's what it is. It's uh, let's be proud of our... What, um, he quotes Alexander III, uh, the father of Nicholas II, the last Tsar. Are saying Russia has only two allies in the world, the Russian army and the Russian navy. <laughs> uh, it gives you a, a, an idea about a, a leader's mentality that um, by our armed forces, uh, we triumphed in the past and we will in the future. And he goes along every year to the FSB meetings and he, he expresses public pride in the intelligence services too. So he identifies himself with brute, brute power. Um, yeah, that's an, interesting, that's an interesting aspect of him. Um, I, I've got put this into the book that um, he, he doesn't admire Stalin but he admires what was done in Stalin's time. So he's very careful. So, um, for example, he went to commemorate the Polish dead who were slaughtered on Stalin's orders at Katyn Forest, a terrible massacre that occurred in the Second World War at Soviet hands. So... So he's, he, he's moved away from being a... He's not a, a, a personal fan of Stalin in terms of the repressions. He, he, he went out of his way to meet and award medals to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So it's a complex... Um, 
I was going to say, almost subtle form of public politics, of playing one side against another. He wants to be the national leader who brings together ex-communists and ex-dissidents. Uh, and he does it in a cunning way because he, he's actually using the organizations, the armed forces and the intelligence agencies more than any other to secure his supremacy. He, I mean, one has to acknowledge this, that there's, there's a lot going on in the Kremlin that is um, very assiduously calculated. Okay, I'm starting to get the evil eye, but uh, I think there's w we'll get one last question, I think. Uh, you were saying... Is this on? Yeah. Uh, you were saying that Russia's economy is essentially a resources economy, and I would imagine oil, sorry, coal, and, sorry, oil and gas are the main components of that. And I would imagine also that the basis, that's the basis of the alliance with China. Um, but increasingly people are going to have to move away from fossil fuels. Um, yeah. And that's going to make them economically relatively poorer to, compared to the rest of the world, but it's also going to decrease their usefulness to China. What is the thinking in Russia about this at the moment? Um, that's a really important question. That, um, As far as I can see, the Russians aren't debating it with the same intensity as say we are in Europe and North America uh, at the moment. The shale gas revolution in oil extraction was pretty disastrous for the Russians, uh, as was the, the collapse in the oil price. So they're more focused on where else they can get their oil from uh, than they are in what are we going to do in a world that's not dependent on oil, than they should be. You see, in some way, uh, um, I, I think in some ways they're, they're far-sighted about uh, uh, not expecting the world to do them any favours. They've gone past that. They no longer, they, they did think that in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. They thought the world would do them, start to do them favors as they, as they set up a market economy. They called themselves Democrats. They were uh, in 91, 92. Um, but they're not really having, I don't, I don't get the impression that they're having quite the serious debate that they ought to be having about. Um, the world after oil. They tend to be talking about where else can they can we get it from underneath the Arctic? That 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 they talk more about that than they do about a post-oil, post-gas world. I mean, we don't talk about it enough. Um, we don't have the plans that we need. But my impression is that they. They've got even less hard thinking about this than they need. I mean, they often say, uh, we've got to get past this oil and gas dependency. Uh, Putin wrote his doctorate on this in the 1990s. Well, he didn't actually write it. 
<laughs> Why? <laughs> well, I mean, n- none of these. I mean, half the Russian ministers have got doctorates, and uh, uh, they don't cost that much. <laughs> uh, and one of the themes of this doctorate that he didn't write uh, was oil and gas dependency and how, uh, interestingly, how demeaning it was for a country to be dependent for its economic prosperity on pulling stuff out of the earth. Uh, National pride again, national pride. He's constantly saying, we've got to be strong in the world. You, You know, even... You watch him going down to the Russian Grand Prix every year. He's, he's strutting his stuff. He's absolutely proud to be shaking the hands of rich millionaire um, car drivers. Um, uh, he, he just loves it. Um, at the Sochi Olympics, a day before uh, they invaded Crimea, there he was in the, in the, in the moonlight, proud of being the man who had brought the Olympics to Russia. The Russian pride, post-imperial pride, is one really big key to understanding this fantastic country, a country that's given us Shostakovich, Bloch, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, um, Solzhenitsyn, uh, the most wonderful um, sportsman, uh, there's so much more to this country than Kremlin pseudo-dictators. I'm very sorry, I'm afraid uh, I'm getting the very serious evil eye now. We don't have time for any, any more questions. I would like to thank Robert Service. I would recommend his... And I would highly recommend Kremlin Winter. It's a superb read, and I'm quite sure he'd be happy to sign copies afterwards. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. HistFest.